Good morning. We're going to be continuing in uh, exposition of the book of Job, and we'll be starting into Job chapter 2. For those of you, our visitors, who haven't been here for Job chapter 1, I'm going to summarize nine sermons in about, in about five minutes. <clears throat> and that is really that uh, Job was a man in the Old Testament who was blameless, upright, God-fearing, and yet bad things happened to him. Why is it that bad things can happen to God's people? Why is that? So as we review that, uh, we stand at the edge of winter here. Winter time is upon us, and, and we in Erie are expecting snow, probably lots of it. And I think most of the people who live here enjoy the snow. When, when the first snow comes, my wife and I turn into four-year-olds and go and press our noses on the glass. And Erie itself and the, the areas south are, are they're only moderately hilly, so the snow mostly stays where it lands. But that's not the case in the more mountainous areas. In fact, uh, fairly recently, a, a professional Canadian skier was buried in an avalanche while filming with a crew in the backcountry of Pemberton, British Columbia. So I'm sure you know this, that as each snowflake falls on the mountains, the snowpack builds. And a physicist would say that the potential energy of the snowpack is increasing with every snowflake. And the potential energy accumulates until there's a point where even the slightest motion can cause the stasis of the snowpack to be disrupted and most of that potential energy becomes kinetic energy in the form of a very dramatic, destructive, potentially lethal avalanche. I mention all of that because in our previous study in Job chapter 1, we saw a very similar destructive accumulation begin to build in Job's life. And the pressure on Job and his faith began as Satan launched his calculated attack on a very joyful day of celebration. And the initial assault was upon his finances as Satan utilized the Sabaeans to carry away Job's oxen and donkeys and murder all of his servants that were minding them. Well, not all, right? Satan ensured that a single messenger survived to share the bloody details of the assault. And so that spiritual pressure on Job began to build and not to miss a single element of the advantage, we read in chapter 1 and verse 16 that Satan arranged it so that while that messenger was still speaking, all, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And Job was not even given any time to recover from that, from that first devastating news when the second messenger arrived and this one wrongly suggesting that God was the source for this next calamity. So another financial shock for Job as his flocks are incinerated and all of his servants are burned alive. Well, not all, again, right? A single messenger out of all of that is preserved just in order to deliver this lie about God. And so the spiritual pressure on Job continued to build but he was not even given time to process any of that because, again, Satan had aligned up events so that 
in chapter 1, verse 17, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So now Job is financially ruined as the last of his flocks and herds are taken and all of his servants are slain. Well, not all, right? Again, a single messenger is allowed to survive in order to to deliver this message. And so again, the pressure on Job builds and utterly financially wiped out, supposedly by the hand of his own beloved God, the pressure on Job had built really to the breaking point. It would only take one more thing, one final severe shock to bring everything down. But at that point, what more could possibly happen? I mean, he'd lost all of his financial holdings, right? He has nothing less to lose. Well, sadly, we know the answer to that. And in chapter 1 and verse 18, while this messenger was still speaking, another came also and said, your sons and your daughters. So then concentrically, his finances and then his family, and then we'll see also his fitness or his health. So this greatest of agonies had come upon Job as the final assault on a man who'd already lost everything. He'd lost so much. The house where his children were celebrating was was struck by a great wind. And verse 19 closes with this. And it fell on the young people and they died and I alone have escaped to tell you. So then the pressure on Job. Can you imagine that? It's reached the breaking point. This destructive avalanche now so carefully built to overcapacity, it would now give way. And that really was Satan's calculated expectation. You can almost imagine that in the silence that followed that last ultimate crushing blow, Satan is practically leaning in with his hand to his ear. I'm just waiting to hear it. Say it, Job. I'm listening for those expected, hated words as Job renounced his faith and cursed God to his face. We may even imagine Satan's delight. Having lost everything, Job arose and tore his robes and shaved his head. It's coming, isn't it? This is it. These are both signs of grief and sorrow in the Middle East. And again, they point to the genuineness of this account of Job. None of this fictional, heroic, shrugging it off. Job is grieved. He's hurt in his heart. We see that. It's not some fictional fable uh, with some uh, glib Aramaic version of, well, all things work together for good. How utterly utterly ridiculous that would be for Job to be good-naturedly untouched by this stunning assault. But Scripture unashamedly shows us Job as a man of sorrows, even as he is a foretype of the Lord Jesus Christ. But for Job and for Jesus and for true Christians, be very careful never to confuse sorrow with weakness. So then we saw that Satan was denied his victory because after Job had torn his robe and shaved his beard, he fell to the ground and worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and, I, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that 
my brothers and sisters, is the miracle of God-given faith. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, if you are a Christ follower, then you must confess with Job that you came into this world with nothing and you will leave with nothing. And everything in between those two points has been given to you on loan by God. So there's a summation of the matter there. In the last verse, in Job chapter 1 and verse 22, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. The, uh, the text there means he didn't ascribe to him uh, unseemliness or evil. In all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. So now this morning we turn to chapter 2 of Job, and turn there with me, if you will. Beginning in verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking on it. And we'll stop there briefly because you're thinking, that sounds so familiar. And certainly you've noticed the poetic parallelism between that and chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Again, we see that despite his defeat, In the trial of Job, Satan continues to be very busy, very actively patrolling this domain to which he was cast down. (coughs) Excuse me. And although his first encounter with Job did not yield the results that he wanted, still he's not sitting idly by. And does that not make you wonder at the enemy's tenacity? Matthew Henry noted that, quote, one would have thought he had had enough of his former attempt upon Job in which he was so shamefully baffled and disappointed. But malice is restless. The devil and his instruments are so. Unquote. And he further remarks, quote, Satan will have Job's cause called over again. The malicious, unreasonable importunity of that great persecutor of the saints is represented by his accusing them before our God day and night still repeating and urging that against them, which has been many a time answered. So did Satan here accuse Job day after day. And Satan accuses you day after day before God. He is called the accuser of the brethren. So again, parallel to chapter 1, Job brings his servant Job to Satan's attention, extolling the virtues of his prized servants, perhaps even more prized now for having persevered through all that befell him in chapter 1. Job's heavenly father speaks of him again in glowing terms. Look in verse 3, the first part. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. But something is added here that differs from the parallel passage in chapter 1. In the second half, and he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Now that second half of verse 3 is where we'll focus the rest of our attention this morning. He still holds fast his integrity. And the word there rendered holds fast 
is the Hebrew word chazak, which is translated made strong, firm, or resolute. In a negative manner, it can mean hardened against, stubborn, or arrogant. You're certainly familiar with the um, numerous, uh, specifically nine, places in Exodus where we read of Pharaoh, an example in Exodus 7.13, that yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. In the book of Malachi, there are many places where the prophet is conveying accusations from God, which are then refused and questioned by Israel. Malachi 3.13, Your words have been arrogant against me. That's our word, says the Lord. Yet you say, What have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we've walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So that is our word there. Your words have been arrogant uh, against me, says the Lord. So you can see the negative connotation of the stubborn resistance of Pharaoh and Israel. But elsewhere, like here in Job, it's used to describe positive strength. As Samson was about to die along with thousands of others, he called out to God for strength. In Judges 16, verse 28, then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. When the Lord charged Joshua to take up the position of leadership to cross into the promised land, he said in Joshua 1.6, Be strong, there's our word, kazak, and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong, there's our word again, and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. So again, also in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So helpfully, this gives you a better insight into God's view of Job's integrity. He still holds fast his integrity. And to add emphasis when speaking of his beloved, beleaguered servant, this double verb construct is used again. He still holds fast, holds fast his integrity. His integrity here is referring to the fact that Job's faith was based on his true love of his heavenly father and not on some supposed quid pro quo, I worship you, you bless me, that had been suggested by his accuser. It is the word tamah, and it's used four times in the book of Job, and then only one other place in the book of Proverbs, where it is helpfully compared to its opposite. In Proverbs 11.3, the integrity of the upright will guide them. Well, we certainly see that in the case of Job. But the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. Now, in calculus, we use the process of integration, and it means the bringing together of all all of the tiny little bits of whatever it is you have into one. That's integrated. If you have integrity, you have oneness. There is only one version of you. Uh, That is you. And you're not personality A to this person or group, and then you're personality B to the other group, which kind of sounds like multiple personality disorder. And in fact, it is. 
It would be difficult to rely on such an unstable person. And recall what James tells us in chapter 1. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without doubting, the King James says, without wavering. For one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And again in Proverbs 11.3, the integrity of the upright will guide them, but the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. The integrity of the upright, that's part of the description of Job, that he was blameless and upright. The integrity of the upright will guide them, that is, what we see at at work in Job's life. Not of two opinions, not of two minds, not unstable in all his ways, but rather he is resolute. So Job's integrity of the upright is shown there in contrast to his opponent, the devil, of whom it is well said, but the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. You can contrast that crookedness, uh, Seleph, uh, the Jesenius uh, Greek or Hebrew Chaldee lexicon says smoothness or slipperiness. And is not not an accurate description of Job's adversary, that smooth, slippery, cunning, crafty old serpent. But thankfully, his ways will destroy him. God's assessment and his praise of Job can then be a guide for us as well. He still holds fast, holds fast his integrity. And that is what you must do, Christian. You must purpose to maintain your devotion to God with singleness of mind, not double-minded, not unstable, but in sincere love for him, be constantly seeking to do that which is pleasing to him and glorifying to him. You must hold fast, hold fast to this. And some may say, well, that, that sounds a bit obsessive, and I would agree. Whatever the name, we're called to single-minded devotion to Almighty God, the creator of the universe, and he won't share his glory with anyone. Is that really not what the Word of God already tells us in Deuteronomy 6.5? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is your purpose. This is what all of mankind was designed to do, but lost in the fall. But for you, Christian, this is what your new life in Christ now enables you to do. And this is where you find true happiness and stability in this angry and unhappy world. So I encourage you to take this opportunity, this Lord's Day, to confess that your devotion may have strayed, you ask His forgiveness, and regain that joy which may be missing in your life. But let's turn back to Job chapter 1 and verse 3. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. So I want you to know that it was my initial plan and purpose to cover all 13 verses of Job chapter 2 today. But as sometimes happens, this sermon wanted to go down a path of its own. So let's look at this phrase, you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. The word 
Here, incited is the word sooth, and it means to persuade, to move, to stir up, to instigate. And the root meaning of it is like a thorn, to goad. And for the sake of time, I'll, I'll show you only a couple of examples uh, of the usage of this word. Uh, please turn to First Chronicles chapter 21. We've read that recently in our consecutive reading in the morning. <clears throat> this is that familiar passage where King David sins by taking an unauthorized census of the people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 21 and verse 1, then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. There's our word sooth there. Satan instigated, he goaded David to number the people, perhaps by sowing fear in his heart. Verse 2, so David said to Joab and to the princes of the people, go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan and bring me word that I may know their number. Now Joab is the captain of his army. And Joab said, may the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are, but my Lord the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why does my Lord seek this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? So clearly Joab understands immediately that this is not a righteous thing to do. Whatever the reason, David was warned by his captain, Joab, not to do this as much as one may warn any king. And the tone of Joab's questions establishes his view that this is a sinful thing. Why does my Lord seek this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? But in verse 4, nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. Joab gave the number of the census of all the people to David, and all Israel were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and Judah was 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he, Joab, did not even number Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. God was displeased with this thing, and so he struck Israel. And in verse 8, David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. This goading, this inciting of Satan's, all of that belonged to Satan. But you can see here the sinful act belonged to David. It was his. David acknowledges his sin and guilt and the foolishness and of what he has done. He does not blame Satan. This is one of the reasons David is a man after God's own heart that he owns his sin. Uh, another example is King Ahab in 1 Kings 21-25. You may recall that King Ahab was infamous among the Old Testament kings for his wickedness and idolatry. And sadly, his entire reign over Israel was summarized in a single verse. In verse 25, Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. And we see Ahab's wickedness instigated and goaded on by his equally wicked wife, Jezebel, but note that he sold himself to do evil. So back in Job, in verse, uh, chapter 2 and verse 3, he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him, God says, to ruin him without cause. This goading, this inciting was Satan's. But the sinful acts that follow against Job were Satan's as well. 
Still, this, this does raise a question, doesn't it? Can, can Satan or any being exert an external influence on Almighty God? And to answer that, we briefly need to consider the nature of God's will, which I will present in three concentric rings, each ring a subset of the next larger ring. And they have here on my marker board a D, a P, and a P in the very center. The D in the outside, the first and largest ring, is God's decretive will. D-E-C-R-E-T-I-V-E, decretive. And you can hear the word decree in there. And this is the entirety of God's will. And it was present present in Genesis chapter 0. That is to say, before that in the beginning part. In Genesis 1, we read of the execution of God's decrees in the creation of time and heaven and earth, of oceans and mountains and fish, flesh and fowl. In his systematic theology, Lewis Burkhoff asserts, quote, it follows also from the very nature of God, his knowledge is all immediate and simultaneous rather than successive like, like ours, and his comprehension is always complete. And the decree that is founded upon that is also a single, all-comprehensive and simultaneous act. God's omniscience means that he has always known all that there is to know, all that has or will come to pass. He's not observing it sequentially like we do. Time does not exist for God. He invented it for us in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, Word one, in the beginning, is all one word. That's when time began for us. It does not exist for God, or perhaps it's better to say that he exists outside of time. Now, continuing from Burkhoff, quote, as an eternal and immutable, that is unchangeable, decree, it could not be otherwise. There is, therefore, no series of decrees in God, but simply one single comprehensive plan, embracing all that comes to pass, unquote. And that, my brothers and sisters, is our wonderful Heavenly Father. This decretive will is sometimes called God's secret or hidden will. And that simply means that it is not known to us. It's unrevealed to us. It's private. If you wanted three Ps, you could put private on the outside. His decretive will towards Job included from eternity past, commencing the trial, allowing Satan's destructive but limited access to Job, causing Job to persevere, and ensuring that Job's endurance was recorded for us for all the following generations. And his decretive will included the fact that you would be listening this morning. All of these things he ordained from eternity past, and all we can do as poor creatures bound in time is to wonder in amazement. And we say with Isaiah in chapter 40 and verse 13, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? No one. In Genesis 1, God's decree takes a new form as he begins to give instruction to his people created in his, vi- in his image. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
these commands that they should be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over every living thing, these precepts are then no longer solely known to God and solely contained within his decretive will, but now they are public knowledge to us. And we know this because they're written for our benefit in his holy word, the Bible. So in our concentric rings, we have our second inner ring, and that is God's preceptive will. And you can hear the word precept in there. That is his expressed will. His precepts are made public to us. His perceptive will, preceptive will began here in Genesis with us, with his spoken word later recorded in the book of Genesis by Moses, and where we first read of God speaking. He is speaking light into existence. Some of the precepts that we learn from that are that our creator can speak things into existence. We learn about God then. How would you possibly know it unless God had told us that? So we also begin to learn about his omnipotence. I did a, uh, an experiment, which I did many years ago with my Sunday school class. I got the same results. I said to my Sunday school class and to Kenneth, let's try this. Maybe I'm like God. Presto, let there be peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. You know the result, right? I am not like God. We learn that here. We begin to learn that here in Genesis. Uh, we are created in God's image, not the other way around. So regarding God's preceptive will, R.C. Sproul wrote this, quote, Here God re reveals his will through his holy law. For example, it is the will of God that we do not steal, that we love our enemies, that we repent, that we be holy. This aspect of God's will is revealed in his word as well as in our conscience by which God has written his moral law upon our heart. His laws, whether they be found in Scripture or in the heart, are binding. We have no authority to violate this will. These commands from Genesis 1 are positive in nature. You shall do this. You shall be fruitful and multiply. You shall subdue the earth. But in Genesis 2, we see the first example of a, a negative precept. In Genesis 2, verse 16, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat. That's a positive precept. You may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And he underscored this. So he underscored the negative precept with immediate punishment. This precept regarding theft was then later codified by Moses in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 15. Thou shalt not steal. His precept regarding murder is clearly recognized in Genesis 4 in response to the murder of Cain, or to the murderer Cain. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And this precept too was accompanied by immediate punishment. In verse 12, when you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer in the earth. So this precept was also codified by Moses in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. You shall not murder. I know that's a lot this morning. <clears throat> There's more. Francis Turretin in the 1600s, <clears throat> basically 1679 through 85, wrote a three-volume set of his Institutes of Elenctic 
Alentics is concerned with persuading people of the truth of the gospel message, his institutes of Alentic theology, which dealt with God's preceptive will. Quote, Hence have arisen various distinctions of the will of God. The first and principal distinction is that of the decretive and then the preceptive will. The former means that that which God wills to do or permit himself, and the latter, what he wills that we should do. The former, the decretive, relates to the futurition, which is those things that will occur in the future, and the events of things, and is the rule of God's external acts. The latter, the preceptive, is concerned with precepts and promises and is the rule of our action. The former cannot be resisted and is always fulfilled. He quotes Romans chapter 9, 19, who has resisted his will. The latter is often violated by men. Quote, how often would I have gathered you together, but you would not. Jesus said, Matthew twenty three thirty seven. So this last statement brings forward the innermost circle in our diagram, God's permissive will. So we have the decretive, the perceptive, and then God's permissive will. Regarding this permissive will, Charles Hodge states in his Systematic Theology, quote, the decretive and preceptive will of God can never be in conflict. God never decrees to do or to cause others to do what he forbids. Well, you may say that's obvious, that there are no God-given precepts in the Bible that are in conflict with his will. But Hodge goes on to say, quote, he may, as we see he does, decree to permit what he forbids. He permits men to sin, although sin is forbidden. So then one may say, God contradicts himself in allowing what he forbids. Again, R.C. Sproul clarifies this for us. Quote, we have the power or ability to thwart this preceptive will of God, though never the right to do so. Mm-hmm. Nor can we excuse ourselves for sinning by saying, well, que sera, sera, what will be, will be. It may be God's sovereign or hidden will that we be permitted to sin as he brings his sovereign will to pass even through and by the means of the sinful acts of people. God ordained that Jesus be betrayed by the instrument of Judas' treachery, yet this makes Judas' sin no less evil or treacherous. When God permits us to break his perceptive will, it is not to be understood as permission in the moral sense that he is granting us a moral right to do that. His permission gives us the power but not the right to sin. Now, it may be that you're not so enthusiastic about the term permissive will, about God's permissive will. Um, we think of that, perhaps you, you may, we may deem the actions of a permissive parent who, who will not discipline their child. And so then we think perhaps that is ultimately destructive to the child. And it's true that if neither angels nor humans had sinned, there would be no third circle. There would be no permissive will, that forbidden area, that area of transgression. Uh, We would all in thought and action be in perfect alignment with his revealed will, his preceptive will. That would be nice, wouldn't it? That That would be heaven. Well, no, actually for you and I, that will be heaven a place where sin does not exist. But that is not how things are for you and I, here and now. 
And without the permissive will of God, there would be no forbearance on God's part, no future punishment for sin, only immediate sentencing like that that Satan encountered when he rebelled. So let us be thankful for our Lord's mercy toward us, not minimizing his gracious dealings with us, as Paul describes, and I'll I'll use the New King James here in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Paul asks, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Now, I remember preaching three or four sermons on that, more than 20, on that one verse more than 20 years ago, and I have never gotten over it. I've never gotten over the beauty of that verse. The riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering. We know about God's goodness. And his forbearance is this, that he does not give us immediately what we deserve. And his forbearance is that then in the face of that mercy, we continue to sin against him. This is his long-suffering. That's what God does. He withholds the punishment from us. So then... Without the permissive will of God, there could be none of that, only immediate deserved punishment. But instead, because of his great mercy, the goodness of God leads you to repentance. So having said all of that, let's turn our attention back to our verse in Job chapter 2. Job chapter 2, second half of verse 3, he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. The question was, can Satan or any being exert an external influence on Almighty God? Can anyone or anything cause him to do that which is outside of his own decretive will? Absolutely not. As we saw, it's impossible for God to act outside or against his own will. So then it has always been God's eternal will that Job should be afflicted. Is that true? Well, it must be so. Job understood this, that nothing in his life was outside of God's will for him. Job understood that God was sovereign even in his afflictions. He says this later in in Job 19, verse 21 He says, pity me, pity me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. You can hear Job's genuine grief in this. And again, that is the part of the authenticity of this book. But as we noted, sometimes God's decrees are carried out indirectly through secondary causes. Uh, When he, quote, he makes use of means, we would say. And here he has made use of Satan's innate, hateful, murderous nature. And through that, the will of God is accomplished. This also demonstrates God's permissive will towards Satan. At no point did he command Satan to steal Job's wealth and murder his family. He permits Satan's assault on Job, even though theft and murder are proscribed in his preceptive will. We learned those back in Genesis 2 and 4. However, for Satan, this part of God's permissive will will not end in repentance. And we know this because of God's preceptive will written in our Bibles. We're told his end. In Revelation 20 and chapter 10, we learn what becomes of Satan. 
And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There will be no forgiveness, no repentance for Satan. So we saw in Job chapter 1 and again here in Job chapter 2 that God is sovereign and in full control and that the destruction in Job's life was allowed by God but completely authored by Satan. As to the question of why did God allow such a trial for his beloved servant Job? Job did not and we will not know on this side of glory. You may wonder what possible good could, could come from this, bu- this brutal destruction of Job's family and his wealth. And many times we encounter trials, and we are not granted to know the reason. Sometimes our Lord is pleased to show us a part of the why behind our afflictions, but Almighty God does not owe us anything, right. let alone an explanation. But recall what Abraham observed when he was pleading for the supposed righteous men in Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham said, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? If you are trying to judge whether God has done the right thing, you have seated yourself in the wrong chair. We dare not sit in judgment of the judge of all the earth. Rather, we would say with Paul, in Romans eleven thirty three, oh the depth of the riches both of his wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? In the words of Charles Spurgeon, quote, He has ordered everything for our good, and can he be forgetful of us? Let us believe that whatever he appoints is best. Let us choose rather his will than our own, unquote. So I want to encourage you, Christian, that even though your personal trial may be as severe as that of Job, Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, has not forgotten you. I reminded you recently not to casually use the verse, all things work together for good, Consider that passage again in the light of God's will for you. Romans 8, 28. And then we know that God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That is his eternal private decree for you, now made public. In the same way that God created heaven and earth and declared all of this incomprehensible creation to be good, With that same attention to detail, he has declared your future with him to be good. In verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Christian, God's eternal decree is to make you to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And in verse 30, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. I remind you again that he speaks of these five stages in the past tense. From God's perspective, from eternity past, this is a done thing. And so in the face of your severe earthly trial, God is with us. He does not change 
your perspective. He doesn't change his perspective about your future. And then in verse 31, what shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Consider what it cost your heavenly father to bring this to pass. This did not come cheaply. And lastly, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not with us, with him, freely give us all things? So Paul asks that question, and you should answer it. If God did all these things for you at the dear cost of, his, of the life of his only begotten son, crucified upon the cruel cross, how will he not also bring your life and salvation to such a state that, quote, God saw that it was good? So then I've been speaking to Christians this morning, but it may be that some hearers know of the Lord Jesus without actually knowing him as their personal Savior. If that is the case with you, then you have none of this promise. You have no guarantee of eternity in heaven. And you find yourself instead surviving on God's permissive will, but perhaps even unaware of his daily mercy to you in the form of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering toward you. And you have no guarantee that you'll live to see the end of this day. We do not have an altar call here where one may walk the aisle and pray some magic prayer, but I would personally plead with you to call out to God, confessing your sin, that your sin is rebellion against him, hell-deserving, and ask him to mercifully save you. There isn't anything you can contribute to your salvation. It is entirely of the Lord, and it's between you and him. So ask him. You may say, well, I would like to have him as Lord and Savior, but I don't know how. Well, then listen carefully to God's eternal decree, which was written from eternity past, perhaps for you to hear this very day in Isaiah 55 and verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. That is the word of God for you. Let's pray.